I would say turn to Jeremiah. We're not going to spend a lot of time there tonight. We're going to talk about it. We're not going to read a lot of it. But it is good to be back after uh, last week at camp where it was also very hot. But God did some really, really cool things that encourage you to talk to the youth maybe as they're exiting the annex and you're exiting the main building and, and ask them to share some of their camp stories. Uh, God did some, some pretty, pretty substantial things in hearts. It's always cool to have an up-close seat for things like that. And then Sunday morning, I was at Calvary Ark City. Robbie and Diane send their greetings. Uh, continue to pray for Robbie. He has a pause this week from his chemo schedule. And then he goes back, I think, for three more rounds, he said. And then they'll do a PET scan and see what the effect has been and um, what kind of surgery, if any, um, they're going to attempt. So I know that they're grateful for the prayers. Ryan is going to be filling in for me, I think it's September. Um, we agreed to, to swap pulpits this year, and he's a fantastic teacher. If you've never heard Robbie and Diane's son, Ryan, who now pastors Calvary Ark City, if you've never heard him teach, he is a gifted, gifted teacher. Um, he and I are also both going to be teaching at uh, the conference the first week in August at Calvary Chapel, Johnson County. It used to be called the PALS Conference, Pastors and Leaders. Now they're just calling it the Johnson County Bible Conference. Um, he and I are, are both teaching. David Fitzgerald is teaching. Chris um, Quintana is doing a message. And Patty Height, our friend Patty, is going to be there. And she's going to be sharing a workshop. So that's going to be a blessed time. It begins Thursday evening, August the 3rd. I think I have that date right. Um, all day Friday and Saturday through noon. Even, even if you can just come up for the day on Friday, which is what I've done a lot of times. Um, it's, it's always great fellowship. Uh, the, the folks at Johnson County, just wonderful hospitality. No charge at all. They, they, they do ask for pre-registration just so that they have enough food, but the food is always great. Anyway, Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a substantial undertaking. It's not an easy left. And it's substantial not just because the length, although it is long, it's 52 chapters, and not just because of the subject matter, although the subject matter is, is a bit daunting. Jeremiah is writing to and about Judah during a time of national crisis. And he's also writing at great personal cost to himself along the way. Not all of the time, but, but not none of the time. It's costing him to serve, to speak, to write, to preach. It's not for nothing that he's called the weeping prophet. It's a challenging book for those reasons. It's a challenging book because it's not dispassionate. It's not an objective observer standing off to the sidelines, offering commentary about something, you know, on something about which he's disinterested. He's in the middle of it, experiencing it, suffering, even as he's writing about it. 
And just to up the degree of difficulty, if all of that weren't challenged enough, Jeremiah is not written in any kind of coherent order. And it's not even a little bit chronological. If you were with us during Isaiah, you remember from time to time we would be challenged, from time to time we would feel a bit frustrated because we'd reach a point and we don't know exactly when Isaiah's writing this. And depending upon when he's writing it, that, that has to do with our understanding of it because a lot of his prophecy had both short-term and long-term fulfillments. So if we're not sure when he's writing, well, we're not sure exactly what the short-term is. That sort of thing happened occasionally in Isaiah. It's going to happen continually in Jeremiah. It's going to be the norm Jeremiah writes over a span of 40 years, 52 chapters that span 40 years, and they bounce back and forth all over the place, sometimes even within a single chapter. A few, every once in a while, sometimes we can anchor to a time and a place. Every once in a while we can say, okay, this happened while, while this, was, or this was being written while this happened, because there's a textual clue. There'll be a reference to a king or a battle or some historical event. But for the most part, it's almost like a collection of topical messages just gathered together maybe at the end of Jeremiah's ministry. And that's actually what a lot of commentators think that it is. A lot of commentators think that's exactly what it is. The, sort of a, a, a compilation of the life's work of Jeremiah, either assembled by Jeremiah at the end of his life or maybe by his secretary, Baruch, after Jeremiah passed on. I mean, it reads like that. It reads, a, a, analogy, it reads like a greatest hit album by your favorite band or, or a four CD box set, you know, released 20 years after they stopped recording everything. You know, great stuff in there, great content. You love all of the individual tracks, but it lacks the flow, it lacks the sequence of a well-constructed album. Which, which, by the way, none of which is to be critical. Obviously, the Holy Spirit did this the way that he did this for a reason, and the content is magnificent. Just a caution, we need to go in with a solid working understanding of the historical context, because Jeremiah isn't always going to provide it for us, at least not directly. I was reminded when were we talking, Michaela? Last night. I was reminded in the conversation last night um, about the importance of historical context. Uh, we were talking about 1 Timothy. Paul writes to Timothy as Timothy goes to take over the church in Ephesus. Nowhere in 1 Timothy does it mention that Ephesus is, is the capital, is the epicenter of worship of the Greek goddess Artemis. Now we read that in Acts 19. In fact, when we finish up Romans this weekend, we will be back in the book of Acts and we're going to reinsert ourselves at more or less that exact point, talking all about worship of Artemis and the impact that it had on Paul's ministry while he was in Ephesus. So we know that. We know that from Scripture. We know that from history. But we don't always carry that understanding when we read 1 Timothy. But, but if you've read 1 Timothy lately, Paul keeps coming back again and again to this theme of idle talk, 
Turn away from idle talk. Look out for women and caution them about their idle talk. Idle, why, why is Paul so concerned about this? Well, if, if, we, if we look at what the Greek word really means and we put it in the historical context that this is a center of Artemis worship, what Paul's really talking about is false worship, nonsense, uh, uh, songs and prayers offered to Artemis. We don't get that within 1 Timothy. We have to carry that understanding into 1 Timothy from other parts of Scripture. And in much the same way, we need to have a good working understanding of the historical context of Jeremiah and we have to carry it into our reading of Jeremiah because he's not going to give it to us. All of which to say, we're going to take one of those go slow now to go fast later Wednesdays and load in the historical context that we're going to need studying the book of Jeremiah together. So let's take tonight, let's refresh our memory on what's happening in Judah before and during the time of Jeremiah's ministry. Doing that now, I think, will help us understand and appreciate and apply the messages that Jeremiah has to share as we get into the text in coming weeks. When we left off historically, we were in Isaiah, and specifically, we were in Isaiah 37, 38, 39, the end of the historical section. And if you think back, that's when Judah was nearly defeated by the Assyrians. Much of Judah, in fact, had been conquered, had been overrun by the Assyrian army. The only remaining stronghold was Jerusalem. And in 701 BC, Sennacherib's army laid siege to Jerusalem when King Hezekiah decided, hmm, this might be a good time to seek the Lord. So he did, and God answered, and the Assyrians were routed. This was, this was a practical outworking of if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven and, and heal their land. Hezekiah did what God had instructed and God responded in accordance with this promise. That's one of the reasons that Hezekiah is remembered as one of the good kings of Judah. Once the kingdom divided, Israel, the northern kingdom, had zero good kings. Judah had some good kings, had some bad kings. Hezekiah is remembered as one of the better ones. Got some things wrong, got a lot of things right, but, but the fact that he, he ended the way that he did has a lot to do with why we remember him as a good king. He's followed by a very bad king. He's followed by Manasseh, arguably the worst king, worst as in most evil that Judah ever had. He undid all of the good things that Hezekiah did. He reversed all of the reforms. He rebuilt the, 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 the shrines to, to idols, the high places. In, in the eyes of some commentators, he left the land as bad as it was, as given over to pagan worship as it was when Joshua first invaded, when Joshua first marched against the Canaanites. That's bad. 639 BC, finally, Manasseh has the good grace to pass on and is succeeded by Josiah. I think about a guy like Manasseh. I was, I was stunned as a young believer the first time I heard a pastor pray for, for someone 
to meet his maker. Like, do we get to do that? And I, and I asked the pastor afterwards, like, do we get to pray? Like, oh yeah, we need to pray that God will either change his heart or change his address. Change his address? Yes. We need to pray that God either changes his heart or takes him out of the game. And, and I can imagine being alive in Manasseh's time and praying prayers very much along those lines. 639 BC, Josiah ascends the throne. And Josiah is the last good king of Judah. He was regent during the last great revival of Judah. 639 BC, Josiah becomes king. 621 BC, you know the story, the temple is being cleansed and cleaned out and, and, and all of the trash and, and so forth, all of the, the wreckage and the rubbish is being cleared out and they rediscover the book of the law. Probably Deuteronomy, but we don't know for sure. What we know for sure is they rediscovered the word of God. And revival always begins. If we look at revivals in scripture, if we look at revivals in history, revival always begins with a rediscovery of God's word. What was in the middle of the Jesus movement that, that has you know, been, been the subject of so much remembrance and so much study and scrutiny lately. It was Pastor Chuck and others, he wasn't the only one, but he was among those that, that were rededicating themselves to verse-by-verse -verse expositional teaching. The church had gotten away from it. And the rediscovery and the reemphasis of the systematic teaching of God's word had everything to do with the revival that the Holy Spirit brought at the end of the 60s and the beginning of the 70s. 608 BC, Assyria and Babylon come to, come to loggerheads at Carchemish. Can we put that map up? So here's Jerusalem down there, Egypt over here, up here, we've got the Assyrian Empire, we've, we've got a clash going on at Carchemish. I'm going to sneeze. Oh, now, now you see, now you jinxed it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Assyria and Babylon are, 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 are coming to loggerheads at Carchemish. Egypt decides to get involved. Egypt decides to get involved in the fight on the side of the Assyrians. Israel, or Judah rather, decides that they're going to interfere. And Josiah and his army try to stop the Egyptian army at Megiddo, Megiddo, and Josiah is killed. Egypt proceeds to get involved the way they wanted to at Carchemish. Josiah is killed. The people of Judah knew who they wanted. They wanted one of Josiah's sons. They wanted Jehoahaz to be the next king. He wasn't a good guy. It didn't matter very much. He was only in office three months. When Pharaoh Necho, because Egypt at that point had tremendous influence, had tremendous sway over Judah, Pharaoh Necho pulls him out of the game, throws him into prison, replaces him with Jehoiakim, another son of Josiah. And that's where things get really bad for Judah. If Manasseh is the worst, the most evil of all of Judah's kings, Jehoiakim, he's in the running for, for number two. You can make an argument that, that he's first runner-up. Manasseh undid all of the reforms of Hezekiah. Jehoiakim did all of, undid all the reforms of Josiah. 
reinstituted pagan worship blatantly, flagrantly, openly, exploited people for his own profit and pleasure, did, did everything that God said don't do, did everything that God warned through Isaiah and the other prophets would lead to their judgment. Everything that God says he hates, Jehoiakim said, and I love. Everything that God promised to judge the nation for, Jehoiakim embraced. He becomes king in 608 BC. 605, Babylon finally prevails. It's called the Battle of Carchemish, but it went on for years. The campaign, the war, call it what you will. Babylon finally prevails. The combined forces of Assyria and Egypt aren't enough. So the Assyrian Empire effectively uh, is absorbed by the Babylonian Empire at that point. And Nebuchadnezzar is feeling his oats. Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm really quite something. And he immediately flexes and invades Judah and marches on Jerusalem. That's 605 BC. That might cause a little dissonance in some of our brains because we're programmed to think, wait, 586 BC is when Babylon defeats Jerusalem. And that's right. But there were actually several uh, advances several military excursions against Jerusalem leading up to that. Side note for my Wednesday night friends, that gets important when you're calculating the 70 years of captivity because 70 years of captivity from 586 BC doesn't even come close to working. But if we remember, hey, 605 BC, that was, that was the first time Nebuchadnezzar comes against Jerusalem invades Judah, marches on Jerusalem, doesn't destroy it, does take prisoners, prisoners including Daniel and his friends. He also begins to tax the Jewish people heavily, makes Judah pay tribute, which buys Judah, literally buys for Judah, a season of stability. They pay for stability with their taxes until Jehoiakim gets greedy and starts holding out on Nebuchadnezzar. At which point, Neb says, okay, <laughs> so, so I, I think I need to explain myself a little bit more clearly. And he rolls back to Jerusalem in 597, takes 10,000 more prisoners, and probably has Jehoiakim killed. The circumstances are a little fuzzy, fog of war and all of that. Jehoiakim ends up dead during, during that, that drama. With Jehoiakim out of the picture, Jehoiachin, his son, becomes king. And as king, he promptly surrenders. His first, his first act of king is to surrender to Babylon. He ends up taken to Babylon and is treated very well. He's rewarded for his treachery. But at that point, still 597 BC, Zedekiah becomes king. He's another son of Josiah. So he's the third son of Josiah to ascend the throne. Zedekiah's defining characteristic, he's a flake. Follow God, follow the people. Listen to the Lord, listen to the people. Align with Babylon, align with Egypt. Align with Babylon, throw in with Egypt. He's back and forth and back and forth. Finally, 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar asks himself, why am I bothering? This isn't worth it. He's making it too hard for me. 
So Nebuchadnezzar in 586 invades a third time, and this is the time that we think about, the time where he burns the city, destroys the temple, and carries off almost all of the remaining inhabitants into captivity. And no one could say that Judah wasn't warned. 586, Hosea, Amos, Isaiah, those guys began prophesying 200 years earlier almost. Elijah, Elisha, 300 years earlier. So that's the context of Jeremiah's ministry. He's called to ministry. One of the concrete dates that we do get, um, ish, people quibble about it, but most commentators are reasonably sure he's, he's called to ministry in 726 BC during the reign of Josiah. And he's, he's variously described as a youth or a young man or even a young boy, depending on how you translate the word in, first, uh, in, in, in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 6. Best translation is probably young boy. We think about Timothy as a young person serving in ministry, overlooking the fact Timothy was probably 30 years old or so when Paul says to him, let no one despise your youth. Jeremiah was really who we should be talking about. He was a kid as he begins his ministry under Josiah. And he's initially a really enthusiastic supporter of Josiah, because why not? You've had 55 years of Manasseh, and Josiah is saying, God and the word of God and the house of God. Along the way, though, Jeremiah gets a little disenchanted because along the way, Josiah pivots slightly. What begins as spiritual zeal ends up being almost nationalistic fervor. And, and Jeremiah gets a little bit soured on that. After Josiah is Jehoiakim. Safe to say Jeremiah and Jehoiakim were not close friends. In fact, they weren't fans of each other at all. After one sermon, a sermon that we read in chapter 7 and chapter 26, both, both talk about it, Jehoiakim forbids him from preaching at the temple anymore. Why is that the king's business? He made it his business. Sometimes, sometime later, Jeremiah put together a, a, a book of his teaching. Jehoiakim came across it, tore it into pieces, and burned it. This, this, this is not when books were printed on printing, printing presses. This is when, if, if there was a book put together, that was the book and it was the only book. Jeremiah responded by rewriting it and adding to it. So that was their relationship. Jeremiah continues to preach. He just can't preach in or around, near or anywhere in the vicinity of the temple. But, but he gets points for not being discouraged. You know, he, he, he doesn't take his, his bat and ball and, and go home and say, well, if you don't want to hear, if, you don't, if you're not going to let me, if you're not going to listen to me. No, he asks himself, okay, where, where can I preach and who can I preach to? But, but as he's preaching and as he's speaking, he's also watching Judah continue its, its downhill descent, its, its descent to, to certain judgment. By the time Zedekiah is king, Jeremiah's message has really been reduced to, to three parts. A, the future of our nation is not here in the land, at least not in the near term. The future of our nation is dwelling in Babylon. B, the exile in Babylon is not going to be short. 
It's going to go on for decades. But see, it will end, and it will end with the restoration of the people to the land. Just remember part B, not anytime soon. It's a bleak message. And it's a message that he delivered in tears. Imagine having to tell people that you love in a, in a nation that you love in the shadow of a temple that, that, that Jeremiah had a very special relationship with the temple. In the shadow of the temple, we're not going to get to be here for a while. God who called us to this land is going to drive us from the land because we haven't respected him, we haven't obeyed him. The lowest part of Jeremiah's ministry comes in 586 B.C. When Judas invaded for the third time, Jeremiah witnesses the carnage and, and the mayhem up close and personal. He's, he's at street level for everything that's happening. He's not watching up from, from some ivory tower or, or from some adjacent land. He's in the middle of the pain. He's in the middle of the suffering. He's in the middle of the frustration. I was having a conversation with, with someone at camp, and I don't know how we got on the subject, um, but we started talking about prophecy and eschatology. And, and one of the common misconceptions that people have about our view, my view of eschatology, what I think the Bible teaches is that God will remove his church before the great tribulation a common misconception is God loves his church too much to allow them to suffer that kind of uh, uh, cataclysmic trial. And that's, a, that's an incredibly narrow and, and Western-centric perspective because the kinds of things that we read about in the book of Revelation and other prophetic scripture, that's the day-to-day -day existence of much of the church for the last 2,000 years. Jesus promised it would be like that. Jesus promised we would know tribulation. The fact that we're, we're excused from one particular period of time is, is, is an exception. Most of the last 200 years of American history, American Christianity, is an exception. It's a two-standard deviation anomaly. Jeremiah is in the middle of tremendous pain and suffering and frustration. That doesn't make him any less God's person. He was very much God's man in that moment, in that season. And he suffered because of it. What happens afterwards? There's a break in the siege, um, even before the, the um, destruction of Jerusalem is, is complete. Uh, and, 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 and this is where he's beset on both sides, because even as the enemy is outside the gates, there's a, there's a break in the action. He takes advantage to go visit his home a few miles away, a few miles outside of Jerusalem. He's arrested. And, and, and jailed on charges of treason. You, well, you're outside of the walls. You must be helping the Babylonians. So he goes through kind of a, ser a, 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 a series of episodes like Paul where first he's under house arrest and then he's actually thrown in a dungeon. Eventually he persuades Zedekiah to let him back above ground and he's hanging out in the courtyard of the guards until the city is finally sacked. The city is sacked. Jer Jeremiah is broken. He knew what was coming. God used him to declare it was coming. It, it still wrecks him. 
but, but in his brokenness, he perseveres. Nebuchadnezzar gives him a choice. You can go to Babylon and you'll live a good life, or you can stay in Judah and fend for yourself. Jeremiah elects to stay in Judah because it's not about him. And he knows that that's where God called him, a much less comfortable, much more painful, much more difficult life, but the life to which God had called them and the people to which God had called them. So he stays in Judah. The last time we see him, the people were asking, okay, should we go to Egypt as refugees or should we stay in Judah? They had just gotten done assassinating the, the governor that Babylon had installed. And then they go to Jeremiah, okay, so what do we do now? Jeremiah says, stay, make your peace with Babylon. And he says, well, well, okay, thanks for your opinion, but we're going to go to Egypt anyway. Jeremiah goes with them, may not have been his choice, to continue warning them, if you keep defying God, bad things are going to keep happening. It's going to be a challenging study, Jeremiah. Challenging in scope, 40 years, and, and, and not you know, 40 years of change, 40 years of tumult, and, and 40 years of growth in Jeremiah as we sort out, okay, this is something that he spoke early on. This is something that he spoke later in his ministry. He's not the same guy at the end that he is at the beginning. You know, I mean, who of us would be? I was talking to a friend who happened to, he actually happened to catch me teaching um, online at Calvary Ark City. And he said, you don't teach the same way that you did when you were in New Jersey. Like, I hope not, it was 13 years ago. 13 years times 50 weeks nominally in a year times twice. You know, conservatively, I've preached 1,200 sermons since then. Yeah, I, would, I, would, I would hope that something was different. Jeremiah is real different after 40 years. Challenge in scope, challenge in organization. There isn't any. No clear chronology. Some chapters bounce all around in, in time. Challenging subject matter. What is it to follow God in a nation that's intent on abandoning God? There are going to be some, uh, I think, some parallels for us to consider as we make our way through Jeremiah. What is it for us to follow God in a nation abandoning God? I, ho I hope that in some ways that this is a preview. I hope that perhaps we're going into the days of Josiah and God will bring revival again. You probably saw the, 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 the headlines, the news articles that, that Greg Laurie and Harvest um, baptized 4,500 people in Pirate's Cove last weekend. Pirate's Cove, the, the site of the, the baptisms during the Jesus movement, and Costa Mesa is, has baptized there nonstop for the last 50 years. 4,500. That's staggering. Is it a move of the Spirit? Is it a stunt? Is it wishful thinking? I don't know. I don't know. I hope it's a move of the Spirit. I'm praying for revival. But, 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 I, but I, I also look at the reign of Josiah. There was, there was revival in the time of Josiah, genuine revival, no two ways about it. But at the same time, it was too little too late to save the nation. It saved people. 
and it, and it extended the horizon. It delayed judgment, but it, it, judgment was still going to happen. Evil had become too institutionalized. Immorality was too hardwired into the culture by then. I, I think that's probably where we're headed. Assuming that God brings revival, which he may or may not. I'm praying that he will. But I think even a revival will be too late to save America. I just, I'm, I'm praying that God will use revival to save Americans. That God will use revival to give us a reprieve, to, to give us a few more years. That, that a few more souls might be, might be rescued. But I don't know that, that everything that, that has gone wrong in America can get undone, even by revival. The hearts of men have grown too cold. The wickedness is so entrenched. That said, don't put, don't put God in a box. I do wonder, though, as, as we look at, at these decades of Jeremiah, if, if there isn't a parallel. And if we aren't seeing a preview of, of our own demise as a nation. Because I suspect that, that we're going to face a lot of the same choices that Jeremiah faced. Even in these next few years. Jeremiah had to consider what it was to align himself with a leader who pursued nationalist goals wrapped up in spiritual language. He had to consider when it was time to set aside national pride for the sake of spiritual humility. He had to ponder what it was to continue ministry in the midst of, of, of dialogue that was colored by identity politics. And he had to consider what it was to, to continue ministry under real persecution. We have not seen that yet. I get impatient when Americans talk about being persecuted for their faith. It's, it's insulting to those who are tortured, beaten, raped, murdered for their faith. Are we inconvenienced? We're starting to be. Discriminated against? Yeah. Persecuted? That's too big a word. That's too big a word. But I don't know that it will be for long. Challenging stuff relevant stuff. I think, I think it's going to be really interesting to be studying Jeremiah against the backdrop of the 2024 primary season. I think it's going to be exciting. I think we're going to be challenged. Lord, thank you for your word. It is timeless and it is treasure. It's deep beyond our abilities to delve, and yet so, so applicable, so, so relevant. And we thank you that it's so very personal. We can, we can see universal truths, but we can also hear specific, unique encouragement, exhortation. Your word is alive. And as we sojourn in it, as we embark on this journey through Jeremiah, I pray that you'd speak to us. 
I just, I just have a tremendous sense that, that you have treasure waiting for us here. You're the rewarder of those who diligently seek you, Lord. We look forward to your blessings. In Jesus' name, amen.